very first episode of the Agenda for International Development podcast. Now, before we get started, a bit about us. Uh, we're a think tank devoted to proposing novel solutions to international development. We're made of young and motivated researchers, and our aim is to bring a fresh vision of social justice and advocacy to decision makers around the world with our policy-focused research. Today, we'll be taking this step further by launching our own podcast series. Joining us today is Daniel Callies. Daniel is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of California, San Diego's Institute for Practical Ethics. His research focuses on issues at the intersection of ethics, political philosophy, technology, and the environment. Currently, Daniel is working through the social and ethical implications of genetic engineering, specifically gene drive technology. Last year, he published his first book titled Climate Engineering, a Normative Perspective. Today, we'll be discussing climate change and more specifically, the alternatives to mitigation and adaption. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. To get things started, what do you think is the most effective way to address climate change? Yeah, thanks so much, Thomas. Uh, this, is, this is exciting to, to be on the podcast, and I'm excited. This is our, our very first one, so I'm uh-huh. looking forward to seeing the, the podcast in the future. Uh, to get at the question specifically, the most effective way to address climate change has kind of changed throughout the years. So. If we were back in, say, the early 1990s, uh, we had one major approach to addressing climate change, and that was called mitigation. And mitigation refers to us mitigating or reducing our emissions of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, things that are causing climate change. So if we reduce these emissions, then we reduce climate change. Mitigation was and, well, perhaps still is our best way to limit climate change. But unfortunately, we didn't start with mitigation back in the 1990s. We've kind of dragged our feet for, well, now three decades. And it seems as if mitigation alone is no longer going to be sufficient. It's going to be a necessary way to address climate change. It's still a very effective way, but alone it will be insufficient. So Given that we've dragged our feet this long, the world has already warmed by over one degree centigrade, and it's gonna be pretty much impossible to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees or two degrees, which is kind of the international goal. Um, It's gonna be impossible to do that with mitigation only. So in addition to reducing our emissions, we're gonna have to adapt to those climatic changes that we're not gonna be able to avoid. And adaptation refers to altering our settlements or or our ways of life in order to adapt to the coming change in climate. So, for instance, we may need to move crops to higher latitudes, or we may need to build seawalls in certain communities where sea level rise is a threat. Uh, These are just different examples of how we can adapt to climate change. And now, each of these pillars, mitigation and adaptation, uh, if, if you, in my view, are something that the wealthy industrialized states of the world need to take the lead on. And this is probably for two reasons. So first, it's the wealthy early industrialized states of the world that are primarily responsible for climate change. They're primarily responsible for the emission of greenhouse gas emissions that are causing climate change. And second, they're the ones who currently have the means to shoulder the costs associated with mitigation and adaptation. So asking developing countries to forego their development ambitions 
in order to pay it for climate change, a problem that was brought about by the industrialization of the currently wealthy countries is simply unjust. So I would say the most effective way to address climate change is with these two pillars of mitigation and adaptation. Thank you, Daniel. Now, I know that a lot of the talk on climate change is about mitigation and adaptation, but with reference to your book here, are there there any other ways that climate change can be addressed? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, just last year in 2019, my, my first book came out and it's Uh, titled Climate Engineering, A Normative Perspective. And as you can tell from the title, it's a book about climate engineering and what we should think about it uh, from an ethical and a political perspective. And quite frankly, if if back, if again, if we were back in the 80s or 90s, I would be pretty averse to the idea of geoengineering, which generally, or climate engineering, which refers to a group of technologies that are all aimed to counteract climate change. Um, Generally, they're grouped into two categories. One category is carbon dioxide removal, and another category is solar radiation management. Carbon dioxide removal just aims to pull carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, whereas solar radiation management aims to reflect a small portion of incoming sunlight so that there's less radiation to be trapped by the greenhouse gases that are in our atmosphere. And If we were back in the 80s or 90s, I mean, I think very few people would really be enthusiastic or would really be endorsing these technologies because we still had a clear path of addressing climate change simply through mitigation. But we've dragged our feet for so long that it seems like, like I mentioned earlier, it'll be close to impossible to limit climate change to two degrees simply by reducing our emissions. So it seems like at the very least carbon dioxide removal or these technologies that will pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere are going to be half are going to have to be part of our climate policy portfolio. Um, but this other technology that I've looked at more specifically, solar radiation management or stratospheric aerosol injection, is also something that could be used. Um, the idea is basically we could re- put little tiny aerosols up in the upper atmosphere and they would reflect a small portion, maybe one to two percent of incoming sunlight which, like I said, is then going to limit the amount of solar radiation that can be trapped by the greenhouse effect. And there are lots of benefits to this technology in that it's cheaper than trying to uh, achieve the same cooling effect than reducing our emissions, and it's very rapid, whereas mitigation takes place across longer timescales. But there are also lots of uncertainties and lots of kind of worries that we should have about this technology. There are worries about cessation, so if we were to stop using it, um, temperatures would rebound quickly. There are concerns about ozone depletion. Um, there are concerns, there are air quality concerns. And on top of that, there's also a worry, not even just a worry, we're certain that ocean acidification, which is again, a product of having too much uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, ocean acidification would continue because we would continue emitting carbon dioxide and it would continue to be absorbed by our oceans. So this category of technologies known as geoengineering, specifically uh, solar radiation management and carbon dioxide removal, these are solutions that I think may end up playing a role in our uh, climate policy portfolio, Um, but they're also ones that we don't want to lean on any more than we have to. We really want to double down on mitigation and adaptation. How advanced are these solutions? Could we see them being implemented in the near future? So the carbon dioxide removal solutions are a little bit more advanced than the solar radiation management solutions. Uh, Carbon dioxide removal has a a number of different, uh, I guess, instantiations. One is just bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And there are currently, I think, somewhere in between three and five plants throughout the world that are currently using bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. 
Um, there's also direct air capture where we just suck air through large wind turbines and uh, use a binding chemical to pull CO2 from the atmosphere. We also have a couple of these plants that are at the experimental phase and they could be scaled up, but we just don't know how well. Whereas the technologies, the, the second technology that I talked about, solar radiation management, this is all much more theoretical. So it's the type of thing that could be ready within the next five years, but it's also the type of thing that we have no um, real experiments going on with outside of a laboratory up until mm -hmm. this point. And Daniel, how, how does this fit into the global response that we're seeing today? How are countries approaching this? Yeah, so it is being discussed, although it, it was somewhat taboo up until I would say 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, up until then, it really wasn't discussed, and now it's gaining a lot more traction. It was it was discussed explicitly in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's special report on limiting climate change to 1.5 degrees. Um, but it's 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 discussed in a very skeptical way. Most people do not think that at the very least solar radiation management should have a prominent role to play in our fight against climate change right now. Whereas carbon dioxide removal is, is embedded in many of the models that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is using to say we could re, that we could limit climate change to 1.5 degrees. I, I don't want to say it's a certainty, but it's a near certainty that if we wanted to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees, right now we would have to be using carbon dioxide removal technologies, something like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And so the question is whether or not we want to lean on these technologies and try to keep the temperature down, or whether or not we want the temperature to increase by a little bit more and then not kind of dabble in these more risky technologies. And that's, that's a question that the international community is going to have to address. Okay. And, and who, who's pushing this forward then? Um, who's, behind, who's behind this? As of right now, it's mostly uh, just research institutions. So there's, uh, there are big, big research institutions like Harvard. Harvard has a geoengineering uh, initiative where they're looking at both governance challenges and also kind of some of the, the physical aspects that are related to this technology. Um, there isn't a particular country that's pushing it or a particular block that's pushing it within the negotiation. Um, it's more just since we're more at the theoretical stage, this is something that's taking place at, at universities and different uh, think tanks to kind of think through how this could be done and if so, how we would govern it. Thank you, Daniel. Now, you mentioned that to mitigate global warming, we need to keep temperatures from rising below two degrees. Of course, this is the goal of the Paris Agreement um, that we're all familiar with and that came into effect in November 2016. Where do we stand in respect to the agreement? And more generally, do you think the global response is working? Yeah, absolutely. So the Paris Agreement is the most recent climate agreement that we have. It came into effect in 2015 or was agreed to in 2015. Prior to that, we had the Kyoto Agreement. Um, and basically, the point of all of these agreements is to limit climate change. Now, the Paris Agreement, from one point of view, was a huge success of international negotiation. Um, it was an amazing moment of global solidarity where the world's nations came together and agreed to a goal and agreed to the means that they were going to use to achieve this goal. Um, and getting all of the world's nations to agree on almost anything is incredibly difficult, but getting nearly all of the world's nations to agree on reducing greenhouse gas emissions 
which are, you know, a main byproduct of economic development and productivity. Well, that's nearly impossible. So even just coming out of Paris with an agreement was a huge success. Now, that being said, there are two major problems with the Paris Agreement. The first is that even if all of the pledges from the Paris Agreement were met, we would still end up hurtling towards devastating climate change. So the predecessor to the Paris Agreement, like I mentioned, the Kyoto Protocol, was a top-down approach to climate policy in which we identified a goal and then we assigned nations mitigation burdens, or we told individual nations how much they would have to reduce their emissions in order to meet this goal. The Paris Agreement, in contrast, is a bottom-up approach to international negotiation. So basically, we ask each country to come up with what's called an INDC, or an Intended Nationally Determined Contribution to Mitigation. So that is, each country is going to decide on its own what it's willing to contribute to kind of the global pot. And then the hope is that if, when we total all of these national contributions, it would be enough to limit climate change. But like I said, the problem with this approach is that it's in each country's interest to let others make these ambitious pledges and for each individual country to, to pledge, uh, you know, the absolute minimum. Um, so what we really have is an agreement right now in the Paris Agreement that is just not nearly ambitious enough. And in fact, if all of the party's current pledges were fully realized, we'd still end up warming the earth by more than three degrees Celsius, which would cause catastrophic climate change. So this is the first major problem with the Paris Agreement. But secondly, it's not just that the pledges aren't ambitious enough because um, it's also unlikely that they're actually gonna be realized. So uh, unfortunately, the current administration of, of my home country of the United States has already announced its intention to withdraw and has withdrawn from the agreement. And one of the main problems here is enforcement. So all the Paris Agreement really does is ask countries to make pledges and then to meet those pledges. And there's no real way, there are no sanctions for not meeting your goals. There are no sanctions for adopting too weak of a goal. So there's very little incentive to aim high and there's little incentive for us to meet those goals. So while on the one hand, I'm really proud of the global community for coming together in 2015 and agreeing to the Paris Agreement, um, the, the, the sad news is, is that the pledges and the ambition are gonna have to get much more ambitious. If, uh, if the Paris Agreement is gonna steer us away from catastrophic climate change. How is climate change being enforced? And moving forward, what more can be done? Are there any other solutions? Yeah, I mean, as of right now, the way it's enforced, the way it's uh, envisioned to be enforced is kind of with a, a, a shaming technique. So as of right now, the only thing that is required by the Paris Agreement is that countries make pledges and then report on how they did in meeting those pledges. So a country like the United States might pledge to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions or its carbon dioxide emissions by 10% across the next 10 years. And then they'll, they're, actually it's every five years that we're required to report. So then after five years, they would, require to, they would be required to say how they've done in achieving that goal. And the idea is that, you know, just like when you hold yourself accountable to go to the gym with a friend, if the United States says it's going to reduce its emissions by X amount and then uh, shows the world what they've actually done, the idea is, is that there will be some incentive for them to try and meet the goal that they've set for themselves. Um, but like I said, there's, there's nothing stopping them from just reneging and from backing out of their commitments like this current administration has done. Getting countries to commit is always going to be a big ask. 
what can be done to get more commitment out of them and to get some real buy-in from these countries to make sure that they deliver on what they're setting out to do and more importantly for them to start taking the initiative yeah i this is probably the million dollar question um one thing i, I there's one approach which is that people will say if you could get the developing countries to buy in more then it would really push uh, force the hand of the developed countries and this is something i'm i'm reluctant to endorse because uh, greenhouse gas emissions are so clearly tied to development that if you require developed developing countries to reduce their emissions or to curtail their their emission growth then what you're basically doing is trapping people in poverty um, i think the only way to do this is with is quite frankly, with real political action from the developed countries, is holding our governments accountable, letting them know that we think climate change is a real issue and something that deserves our political capital. Um, I think that's really where uh, movement can be made. The reality is that we're already starting to see the effects of climate change all around us. Whether that's erratic weather, rising temperatures, or rising sea levels. Daniel, up to now, what do you think is the biggest tragedy related to climate change. Yeah, so climate change is tragic for a variety of reasons. So first of all, uh, just to step out of our kind of anthropocentric or our human-centered views, um, accompanying climate change is gonna be a huge loss of biodiversity or a huge loss of species. So the overall increase in temperature and a change in precipitation patterns is gonna drive some species extinct. But even more troubling is the rate of temperature change. So the temperature, the average surface temperature of our planet has fluctuated throughout history, but it has never fluctuated as quickly as it is right now. And that's due to, due to anthropogenic sources. So with this temperature increasing quicker than plant and animal species are able to migrate, then they're unable to find an environment in which they can survive, and that species is going to go extinct. And so this loss of species or this loss of biodiversity is a huge tragedy of climate change. But in addition to plants and animals, climate change is also kind of going to cause damage to human settlements as well. So we may experience significant decreases in crop yields, more intense storms and sea level rise that can threaten our, our coastal cities. Um, so that's another, another thing to be worried about. But perhaps the biggest tragedy of all is gonna be the toll on human life. So climate change is already resulting in death and displacement and suffering of many people throughout the world, specifically the world's most vulnerable people. And the estimate for the toll that it's gonna take by the end of the century varies widely, but it could result in somewhere around a million deaths every year by the end of the century. Um, at the very least, hundreds of thousands of deaths every year from climate change. And like I said, the worst part about this, or the most tragic aspect of this, is that those who are going to be hit the hardest by climate change are those who have contributed the least to the problem, the world's least well-off population. And the poor populations of the world who both historically and currently contribute close to nothing to the stock of greenhouse gases, they're going to be hit hardest. And in my mind, this is the biggest tragedy or the biggest injustice associated with climate change. Thank you, Daniel. And that, that really leads us on to what we should be doing to pitch in as individuals. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, at least within the philosophical literature, there's a big debate as to whether or not individuals have obligations to address climate change. And I, I don't want to wade into that, but one thing I will say is that 
something most people agree on is that the, the best thing you can do as an individual is to vote for parties that take climate change seriously. So um, it's climate change is something that governments need to address, that states need to address. And so we need to make sure that we have representatives who recognize it as a problem and have ambitious goals to address it. Um, so I would say first and foremost is when it comes to individual action, voting for representatives who are going to aggressively tackle climate climate change is the most important. But in, a, in addition to voting for green parties, um, by which I just mean parties who take climate change seriously, yep. individuals can change their behavior in different ways. So for instance, we can fly less or not at all. I have a number of colleagues who have committed to only using train travel from here on out. Um, in addition to flying less, you can eat a plant-based diet or at least cut much meat, uh, as much meat from your diet as, as is possible. You could go car free or switch to an electric car or a hybrid vehicle or wash your clothes in cold water. These are kind of small things that will have, uh, you know, if, if aggregated across a large population will have an effect. And more controversially, um, sometimes people will advocate for at least those who can and those who um, uh, are comfortable with this, having smaller families as bringing another person into the world is inevitably gonna have a huge impact on greenhouse gas emissions. So these are just all ways that, again, in addition to doing the most important thing, which is voting for, for uh, good politicians who are going to take climate change seriously, these are little ways that we can, can bring about change. Finally then, Daniel, uh, let's talk about a subject that, well, everyone else is talking about. Uh, of course, that's COVID-19, if you hadn't already guessed. But let's talk about the lockdown, because I'm someone who... I live in Medellin, Colombia, and I, it's a city that's very susceptible to smog and pollution. And I've been here almost three years now, and this is the first time that I've noticed how much better the air quality is. So to put this into a question, what do you think the legacy of the lockdown will be on climate change? And do you think we'll see some major changes in how we address climate change? Yeah, that's a great question um, and very timely, obviously. I'll, I'll, I'll respond to it in, in two ways. So one is that um, there's, there's something very clear that will come out of this lockdown, and that is economic recession in certain parts of the world. And one thing we do know is that greenhouse gas emissions are tied to economic activity. So when we have an economic recession, what we have is fewer greenhouse gases entering the atmosphere. So as terrible as this is going to be, and I really do think that some of these lockdown measures are going to have really drastic effects, especially amongst the world's most vulnerable populations. Yeah. A silver lining will be a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, a reduction in particulate matter, which will increase air quality. Um, this is something like you, I live in Southern California and spend a lot of time in Los Angeles. And it's something that's very evident when you notice cars on, aren't on the road and uh, people aren't working as much, air quality increases dramatically. So. That'll definitely be a silver lining to this, although, you know, the kind of ills that will come about from the recession, I think, will outweigh the small downtick in emissions that we'll experience. But the other thing that's come out of this, I think, is just a recognition of hope, is that with strong direction from our governments, we could make changes that need to be made. So we saw the coronavirus as a threat. We enacted a bunch of uh, policy that was meant to address it. We can do the same type of thing with climate change if we want to. It just comes to pushing our politicians to make sure that they make the right decision. Thank you, Daniel. Now, to finish things up, do you have a final bit of advice for our listeners? 
I think I just said, I mean, this has been great. I think I would just say that uh, I've, I've already underscored it a couple of times, but I think that the best thing that we can do is make sure that we are voting for governments that are really going to take climate change seriously. And even if your, your dream candidate, you know, is up for election and they say everything you want to say, but they're silent on climate change, then that should be a red flag. That should be a good reason not to vote for that candidate. And even more so if the, if the candidate expresses doubts about climate change or thinks it's not a problem that we need to address. I think that we really need to put our money where our mouth is and, and vote for candidates that are going to take this problem seriously. Fantastic. Okay, Daniel. Well, thanks for joining us um, on, on the first episode number one. So hopefully it's the first of many. Yeah, Thank excellent. You. Thanks so much, Thomas. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye.